very, very bright and breezy morning to you on Fellowship Bay 309. I continue to lose track of days. I think it was 301 last time I was here. 301, maybe? I don't know. Can you tell me? Regardless, 309 is the day and, and, as my wife kindly reminded me this morning, it's my birthday. I have steamrolled into my mid-thirties and forgotten all about it. Deep in parenthood, deep in work, deep in doing everything I probably can to forget that I'm in my mid-thirties and keep on rolling. It's, it's kind of weird to be here. I won't put the number on it. I won't put the number on it. I'll, I'll leave that as a, a mystery that you won't ever care about. But I'm somewhere in my mid-thirties. I I will take the day to reflect gratefully on the fact that I am still here, that I'm able to do a lot of what I want. I'm able to work in a great job, able to work on great side projects, able to spend time with two beautiful kids, a wonderful wife, and take all of that as the cushion of the blow that is my quickly receding hairline receding fast enough that the greys that are starting to creep in barely get a look in because there's so few of them now but there you are there you go it's the mid-30s and is that the new midlife crisis i don't know i'm rambling let's get on with the episode 309 i come to you today with the prompting consideration around a particular sort of mindset not one that will be a surprise to you if you've listened to anything beyond a few episodes of the Read Indeed podcast at this stage. I lost my words there. The Read Indeed podcast. I'm slurring. Is that another thing that happens in your mid-30s? It's probably something to do with the uh, beautiful bottle of Rioja I enjoyed with three of my pals out for dinner last night. Oh, I am, I'm probably still reeling from that a little bit. Not the drink. We didn't have much of that. It was the obscene levels of meat. Shout out to the mini grill in Glasgow. Love that place. Another tangent, another tangent. Maybe I'm losing my marbles in my mid-thirties. Where was I? Mindset. Yes, a particular sort of mindset. That's what I want to bring to you today on day 309. Share a little bit more with you on the entrepreneurial mindset. See above previous episodes on push and pull for example and understanding how to find those who truly need what you're developing for example but i'm thinking about this today because it was only a few days ago that as part of this fellowship uh some of my business in the university was to try to pitch the research that we are doing in the frame of something that could become a spin-out company from that research via the university channels. That was a long way of saying, I gave a presentation a few days ago that was nothing like the sort of research lecture that I normally do, that any of you listening who are in the academic space will be used to. In a research lecture, you are telling the story of the science or the technology or the piece of engineering that you've developed, or maybe even a series of interconnected such stories. You are explaining concepts, you're diving deep, you're sharing data, you're sharing 
papers, diagrams, conclusions, you're going whole hog on the scientific story. You're spending, let's say, for an hour's, nah, let's go 30 minute talk. You might have somewhere in the region of 20 to 30 slides all about the tech, all about the science, all about the thing that you and your team have developed. That is worlds away from the presentation I gave a few days ago through the commercial lens, where in a 10 minute presentation, where I had around 10 slides, one single slide was on the technology. One single slide was on the science. Because the point of that pitch wasn't to really explain the technology in depth. There's a sort of unwritten, unspoken assumption that if you are giving such a presentation to a university and external entrepreneurial panel, that the technology's mature enough the technology's there and enough of a readiness level that you have deemed it worthwhile to even come forward in the first place. So what is of interest in some of these more commercial pitches to look at the translation of a technology rather than the development of it? Well, taking it from the beginning, because there was only one slide in the technology, that didn't appear until about halfway through my talk, actually, the or the pitch rather in this case. What it began with was what are the what was the drivers and incentives to taking or developing the technology in the first place? What is the market space that we're playing in? So for our team's research, I know I don't say a lot about it here, but we're broadly in the space of developing analytical equipment for research laboratories. So that took me into the realm of trying to understand how big is that as a commercial market world, worldwide. So you put some ridiculous number on that, like $100 billion. It was around that market. doesn't really matter exactly what the number is. But you're talking, you're telling a story through that sort of lens, not what the technology is, but what space is it playing in? Where Where is the money in the space that you're playing in with the technology that you're developing. And that was dressed alongside my descriptions of various government and market reports about what the trends are, what the behaviours are for the possible customers of a technology in that sector. What are they doing now? What are they investing in? What is driving change for them such that they such that they're out looking for technologies like the one that I was pitching. And then, again, not on the technology itself, there is a story to be told about who is coming together to deliver it. Where are the competencies in the team at the leadership, executive, technical, business development levels, all of those things coming together to actually create what would be a competent team, not to deliver research, but to run a company. Yes, there might be research happening within a company. There's lots of companies out there who have research and development departments. That's not what I'm getting into here. But it's it's another thing that's very different from a research lecture, which would typically have an acknowledgement slide showing a research team, members past and present, maybe even some research sponsors, 
as a way of tipping the hat to say this is how we developed this technology, this is who was involved. The team that is described during one of these commercial pitches um, en route to trying to get a technology translated into a spin-out is the team that would be within the bubble of the spin-out company. Who's going to be the CEO? the chief executive officer who's going to be the CTO, the chief technology officer, if one is required. And you can go across the whole C-suite, right? It depends what sort of company you're talking about. Um, companies will have a CFO, chief financial officer, if one is required. Yeah, a, a lot of different executive positions that... Uh, they sound uh, very much aggrandizing of sorts, but... This is just the language of the, the commercial sector. But what's important is, is that there are commercially vital roles within a team. And during such a pitch to say this technology is worthy of a spin out, you need to be able to show that there are team members in place or there is at the very least a process in place to find the missing team members. So on this particular occasion, to give you a, a more concrete example, I was in there representing the pitch and the technology as the inventor and prospective CTO, chief technology officer of the company. I have a commercial champion, a, a, a prospective chairperson, chairman in this case, if you like, and someone who I deeply admire and respect and has been um, in my circle giving me sound advice on entrepreneurship for about five years now someone who's been there done it taking a company from nothing to um, an initial public offering of hundreds of millions so someone who knows how to walk the walk as well as talk the talk so there's there's me there's him there are uh, surrounding consultants um, one of whom is a current mentor to me on my fellowship and right now, up front for a pitch like that, in this particular case, I had no idea who the CEO of this company is going to be, but I've presented a process of how to find that CEO. So what else is appearing in these sorts of talks? So I mentioned, again, there's only one slide about the technology, right? So it's in there somewhere. But what I'm trying to share with you are the other things that would appear in a commercial pitch that you wouldn't be used to talking about in a research lecture, the thing that might be more familiar to you if you're in the academic audience here. Towards the end of this same presentation, there was inclusion of discussion of how is the technology, how is this product or technology to be turned into a product going to be protected such that your company can be competitive? In other words, how are you going to make sure that someone isn't just going to copy your idea replicate the company and go off and sell their own variation of it tomorrow for me that's the toughest sort of question to answer and it's layers deep on the surface of it it's just plainly difficult to get used to searching patent literature to get used to letting others take the lead on that so looking for support of the real generalist wizards and a patent office, uh, patent attorneys, who are by their training scientifically razor sharp, voracious readers and able to think very broadly and abstractly about interconnected spaces, interconnected technologies. And so being able to have conversations with people like that are the surest way to figure out whether or not your technology can be 
patented, whether or not it is in the domains of know-how and trade secrets, and just how compromising is any sort of research-level divulgence, be it a paper or a presentation at a conference, going to be to ever protecting the technology you're now trying to put into a spin-out company. So that's that's the first reason that the the intellectual property discussion is difficult. The second, as largely someone who's been an academic trying to go into entrepreneurship, that type of discussion is, at least to my opinion, it's almost the polar opposite of what you become used to as an academic and what is valued in academic spheres, which is to write things in a paper, put it out there, have it peer-reviewed, and make it as open as possible to as many people as possible. The The open science ideal has uh, has many brilliant strings to its bow. However, it can compromise a more impactful way of getting the technology out there, which is to put it into a business and get it out there as a product. So I, I find it difficult just from a philosophical uh, mindset perspective because it is a complete flip. The values to an entrepreneurial project are not often well aligned with the values of an academic project. The metrics that you're measured by can be in conflict, but it's it's part of the game and it's something to negotiate, not something that I'm brilliant at, but something I've spent the best part of four or five years now trying to figure out both in terms of developing university spin-out businesses and uh, more personal entrepreneurial projects like my book that I've mentioned several times in the podcast. So that's, yeah, that was a, a long bit of it there, but that that's another part of it. This pitch, this presentation to say this technology is worthy of translating into a spin-out, part of that presentation absolutely has to include how are you going to be competitive, how are you going to protect your technology, how are you going to put a moat around your castle such that it can't be copied, how are you going to protect yourself from the competition. So that's in there. What else? What else did I have to speak about? The roadmap. The roadmap, so what's coming next? How are you going to get from now this early stage pitch to say this is worthy of turning into a company to actually turning it into a company? So part of that is getting the team together. I've talked about that already. Is there anything else left to do in developing minimum viable product or products or service or services? What are the first commercial, commercially deployable versions of the thing you want to turn into a product? How long is it going to take you to get there? Who are you going to bring on board to help with business development? When are you going to come back and pitch more formally at the next stage of university spin-out with your formal business plan? How are you going to uh, raise investment if you need it? How long is that going to take? Can you then prove that your company can stand on its own two feet for 18 to 24 months once it bubbles off and formally spins out from the university so how long is that all of that going to take in my case i thought because we are we're largely looking at a software level business a software as a service it could take about two years for everything that we still have to do could be shorter more than likely it's going to be longer than that but it's a educated guess a wet finger in the air to say here are the milestones that we see going forward so listen if you're still listening, <laughs> I hope you are. I've 
repeated myself, waxed lyrical about a ton of stuff that goes into a commercial pitch that is very different from a research lecture. Look at how many minutes have passed. How much of that time have I spent actually talking about the technology that is core to that business pitch? Not very long at all. I have perhaps on multiple occasions now said that there's one slide in there, but that is it. So coming to that now, what is included when describing the technology, because it's a panel of commercial experts, not all in your area, uh, and for me as a chemist, I don't think there was one chemist on that panel. I may have been mistaken, but that that wasn't their focus. So you have to be able to talk about the technology at a conceptual level, a lay level, that puts across what it is, what is it, what does it do for the potential customer, and what are what are the benefits of it? What are the, what's the the itch? How is it scratching the itch that the potential customer will have? What is the value proposition? In other words, uh, it's a common term in entrepreneurship. How how are you articulating the value of the thing that you've created? How is it addressing the way that the customer works now? What are the pains that that customer faces in their job as it happens now? What would they stand to gain if that pain was alleviated? What is your technology at the conceptual level? How is that technology addressing the pains that the customer currently feels? What is the mechanism of creating gains for the customer with your technology that they can't get any other way. So that's really the story in a nutshell of how how much you'd say about the technology. It's not a 20 or 30 or 40 slide deck about the intricacies of how the technology was developed, what the underlying theories are that helped manifest the technology. Nothing about the broad applications of it. None of that conceptual level what's the pains of the customer what's the gains they stand to benefit from and how is your technology good place to help realize those gains so yeah yeah it's it is worlds apart altogether it is worlds apart from a research lecture the people you're talking to are worlds apart from the sorts of audience that you would be trying to impress or educate for a research lecture. And I said I've been doing this for about five years now, that pitch, that whole story I've just given you about the pitch that I've just given as part of this fellowship is not the first time I've stood in front of that audience. I created my first company back in 2018. It was pre-site safety. It's a company that was originally born out of invitations for me to go and give motivational safety lectures. My, uh, I've, I've mentioned very early in the podcast that my dad was a survivor of the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster from 1988. He had lifelong struggles with post-traumatic stress and uh, his related alcoholism eventually claimed him. And all of that story inspired a lot of work for me and, and then for our team in safety, I I was getting paid to do uh, professional speaking uh, engagements to tell the story of 
my dad tell the story of Piper Alpha, how it generalises to challenges in long-term thinking for safety. But all of that became, if you like, my first commercially deployable product. Not a scalable one, but certainly deployable. And that was put into the pre-site safety business. And our team at the research level and the university at the same time were doing work to develop virtual reality applications for higher levels of safety training. And I tried to fold that into pre-site safety. We've done absolutely sublime work. Like I, I still can't believe we got it off the ground. It sounds like I'm taking my modesty hat off. It's a story for another time. But it was a hard bit of work, hard to get off the ground. And we uh, by the end of it, we'd done it in such a way that it was it was a robust bit of software. It was psychologically tested with end users. We had an industrial champion on board as a potential first customer. But long story short, it just couldn't find more pull to make it an attractive commercial enterprise. And so that was my first big journey into entrepreneurship, partly successful, also partly an absolute failure looking back on it. But would I change it? Would I turn it in? Not for the world. I got a lot of therapeutic value out of it. We've been able to address and talk about my dad's story. But at the same time, I got a, a ton of educational value out of it because, as I've said previously, to learn, you must do. And there's so many things about the entrepreneurial space and the entrepreneurial mindset that I hold dear now, regardless of how much failure there's been to date. Because the type of mindset that it gives you, with all that I've described this morning, with all that I've said as a compliment to how you would do research, it's something that is transferable between the entrepreneurial realm where I've learned all of this stuff and back to the research realm and beyond. So I, there's ways of addressing pains and gains and product development from entrepreneurship that I now try to use when I'm articulating how to develop a new fundamental bit of science and talking and writing grant applications to expand our research projects that are on the surface nothing to do with entrepreneurship. But slight, what will sound like slightly contradictory is that also in terms of writing research grant applications, knowing entrepreneurial paths to impact make it much easier, I think, to tell the story of how you're going to make the science, the technology, the fundamental research that you're developing have an impact in the world beyond the papers that you will write for the primary peer-reviewed literature. That's always a massive challenge. And I think entrepreneurship is a invaluable collection of skills to have to be able to create impact of your work beyond what you might do to get kudos amongst the scientific community. How are you going to take your work and turn it into something that will inspire school kids, the next generation of scientists, how can you turn it into something that will be on TV or a product that can get into Georgie and public's hands? You know, difficult, probing, prompting questions that are never easy to answer, but I think entrepreneurship makes them easier to answer. The same sort of mindset's actually helped a lot on the, the more solopreneur project, which is uh, my imposter phenomenon book project, You Are Not a Fraud book that uh, I've been working on that's with the editor now that I've told you about on previous days. So a book about guiding 
people to understand the imposter phenomenon, the imposter syndrome, how to manage it, um, tell them my story about struggling with it and and how I've come to to manage it myself. Thinking entrepreneurially has allowed me to craft a research piece for that book in such a way that it helps me understand the demographics that are in most need of the product that is this book, the service that is the tools within the book. And that entrepreneurial mindset with knowledge of that demographic continues in terms of sharpening my mind into where I should be telling the story of this book, how I should try to generate interest for it, where I plan to hold the proceeds of the book, so in a, a business rather than as a sole trader rather than in my personal bank account, what I'm going to try to invest in with any proceeds from the book to enhance its impact and who I can help serve. I think maybe a, a partly contentious point on a side note here, there's a lot of folks who are maybe a little bit uncomfortable with entrepreneurship because there's a little bit of it that seems like it's... um you know, Michael Douglas on Wall Street, greed is good, it's all about the money, it's all about generating wealth for yourself. You know, every entrepreneur out there wants to do well for themselves, they want to put food on the table and they want to be their own boss, kind of. But entrepreneurship is not just about making the money, but how you're going to spend it. You know, it's, all not, it's not all about, you know, throwing wads of cash into your pockets. And, and swaggering down the street just to show how wealthy you are. I'm sure we could all point the finger at those who appear to be doing that, but being able to generate money just gives you the power to create more impact in the world. There's entrepreneurs that I've had the great pleasure of meeting who are, you know, circling back to my birthday, at least 10 years younger than me, who I value as people who I think have grown up quicker than I have, who are exceptionally mature, razor-focused, socially impact-driven and gritty. They are resolute. They are emotionally intelligent. They are jacks and janes of all trades to be master of their one product. And I think it's the entrepreneurial mindset that has has given them that collection of skills. I see it far less often in academic circles. I don't think there is, in many cases, the same feast or famine incentive to be as grown up as quickly as some of the young entrepreneurs that I've met along my, my own path to entrepreneurship. It always makes me wonder if if I'd been an entrepreneur sooner, would, would it have helped me mature faster because you know for those of them out there who are full-time entrepreneurs they are relying on being able to generate money firstly to put food on their table but then of course to sustain the business to keep it going to make it have the impact that they want it to have and then of course continue to put food on their table that demands a level of maturity that that mightn't come if you're focused primarily on longer term study and you've got cash in the bank and you know there's a monthly salary coming, it's a different mindset. 
it's not easy to talk about this without it sounding like I'm demeaning one mindset over the other. I'm not. Like I've been talking about with research lectures versus commercial pitches, they're two different spaces that demand two different mindsets. And this morning, trying now to come to some sort of close, that's what I've wanted to get across to you. That's what I want to leave you with is your own consideration, your own prompt, is that for me, forcing myself into the world of entrepreneurship, having come from an academic background, has provided more personal value to me than anything you might think about with regards to making more money. There's value in the mindset of entrepreneurship that spreads far beyond the business realm. And so for you, for whatever you're working on, how might you think more like an entrepreneur to create more impact in the thing that you want to create? Thanks as always for being here. I really do appreciate you plugging me into your ears. All the best to you. Have a great day and I'll see you soon for another episode of the Read Indeed podcast. Take care. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, head over to the website where not only will you find the written blog versions of these podcasts, you'll find my leadership blog series and information about my book on managing the imposter phenomenon. We also have even more free resources linked to the YouTube channel. So head on over to dr-mark-read.com. That's dr-mark with a c-r-e-i-d.com. Thanks again for listening.